Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Video Store Nightmares. Uh, this is episode two of the podcast where we talk about strange, bizarre, melodramatic, and in tonight's case, psychosexual films from the VHS era. I think a lot of these films are films that it would be hard to determine what section of the video store you might see them in. And uh, that might be especially true for tonight's film. We are reviewing 1972's Private Parts. My name is Luke, and I am joined by Leland. Hi. Leland, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great, especially since we are doing this podcast hot after seeing this film. Yeah, so for our listeners, I am usually recording at my home in Virginia, but today I am in Leland's living room where we just finished watching uh, the film in Florida. And Leland, there is a very strange creature next to your TV that's like locking eyes with me. That is a taxidermy mold for a cat from the 70s. Can you give me any background on where this creature came from? It came, like, uh, like most oddities, from just a general antique store. I, uh, so my wife used to do taxidermy professionally, and at least according to her, they, they no longer make professional molds for cats, uh, but they would have clients who would request having their pet taxidermied, and so they would have to mold their own form out of styrofoam, and it often ended up being a quite wonky disfigured cat after they were through imagine a hairless cat but it is a like a idaho gold potato color all the way through and the only features that are discernible are the two little ears a curly tail and doll-like eyes soulless doll-like eyes and I swear they follow you wherever you go in the room. It's really the the one of one of main the main figure pieces of the living room. So I I think it will only add to the charm of this podcast. Um, before I play the trailer, uh, this was a first time watch for you. I I have seen this many times in the past. Um, what's your first impression? I've heard of this movie before. I've seen the title. But, I, but this was the first time I, I watched it myself. And I think it has a lot in common with the last film we watched uh, thematically as far as it starts somewhat normal and then quickly devolves into an absolute psychotic breakdown for everyone on the cast. Nobody gets out unscathed. I, I quite like that assessment. I agree. Um, just like last week's movie, I, I love this one. And I think I said last week that both Blood and Lace and Private Parts, I think, would make a wonderful uh, double feature. Um, so it's really fitting that we're talking about this movie because, it, again, it it's establishing the theme of what we're going to do here on Video Store Nightmares. Uh, so before uh, we get any deeper into this, I'm going to play the trailer. 
and then we're going to do a run through of the plot, um, albeit maybe a little less detailed than we did last week. Uh, the plot of this film is almost beside the point. Uh, this is, dare I say it, a character-driven film um, with not so much twist and turns as bizarre tangents and revelations. Uh, so with that said, let me play the trailer for everybody. King Edward Hotel. Hardly anyone ever checks in. Nobody ever checks out. What gave you the idea to come here? I don't know what you're looking for, but you won't find it here. Now I'm letting you stay here on one condition. That you promise not to wander around the hotel alone. This is no place for a little girl. Sure, all right. Mrs. Quigley, this is my niece, Cheryl. She's staying with us for a while. Behind each door, there's a private terror. And at the heart of each terror are the private parts. Follow Cheryl as she leads you through the darkest corridors of your mind. Private parts. Aunt Martha, who lives in the room next to mine? Nobody. It's a storage room. Why do you ask? Well, I heard noises in there. Well, who have we here? You robbed me of a normal childhood, and now you're trying to rob me of whatever little pleasures I can still enjoy. Hey, what's going on? Yes, it's all right. Just lie still. Cheryl? Cheryl? <laughs> <laughs> My dear child, let me. I have to. It won't hurt. Don't be angry, child. It's, it's smelly. <laughs> That was a spoiler. Yeah, just a little bit. Um, but this is described, at least by YouTube, as the theatrical trailer. I mean, they hadn't mastered the art of trailers back in 1972. Like, they hadn't figured out how to not spoil the movie. That's exactly what I was thinking. You know, uh, <laughs> trailerography has not been in a, has made leaps and bounds since 1973, I suppose. Yeah, well, so one thing they say in the trailer that they they emphasize throughout the movie is that our main character, Cheryl, is described as a little girl. How old <laughs> do you think she actually is? <laughs> Much like the last film we watched, <laughs> Blood and Lace, 
I believe that she is probably in her late 20s, early 30s. Yeah, I don't know if she looks that old, but how old do you think she's supposed to be? Now, this movie is very careful not to divulge that information. It is. Probably because of, uh, well, it's a giant red flag for what the rest of the movie is going to be about. They right. can't tell you legally. <laughs> right. So the, the implication, in other words, is that she is underage. So that's one of the first things that stands out to me in the movie. Uh, another thing is, as soon as the, the film starts, we see that it is produced by MGM. Was that a surprise to you? I was a little surprised that this was a major, a major like production. I expected this to be uh, more of something you would find in this, you know, at a drive-in or a side, like a like an oddity theater or something like uh, like again, like Blood and Lace. So this this movie was released to theaters in 1972, but my understanding is MGM put it out through a subsidiary because the test reactions were so bad. And then they shelved it, and it did not get a VHS release until 1991 or 92. I This was an actual rental for me. Um, my copy came from a Hollywood video. Um, so th- this was a video store find, but yeah, it sat on the shelf for a good 20 years. But if you at home would like to watch this movie, uh, now it is available on Amazon Prime. Yeah, that that's how after trying to subject Leland to uh, a ripped VHS copy of of the film, uh, we turned to Amazon because I don't know we're corporate chills, I suppose. I I don't know what the issue was if the TV was too new or if the rip was bad, but the quality was so bad you couldn't even see nipples. You can't watch a film like this with and not be able to see nipples. I suppose that's true. <laughs> We we definitely get quite a few flashes of nipple in this in in this film right from the beginning. So we start with a scene of of a couple making love, and our underage protagonist is, is spying on them. Once they realize that they're being spied upon, their instinct is not to cover up, but to grab her, pull her into the room, and strip her as well. She does get away, though. She does. Um, and the the male in this situation um, tells his, his girlfriend to leave her alone because she's just a kid. But I, I just found it shocking that the first instinct of this, this woman is to strip her friend and subject her to some kind of humiliation. Uh, it gives you a taste of the characterizations throughout the film. They don't draw a lot of attention to you exactly why these two girls came all this way out uh, into the city but if her friend if cheryl's friend is clearly supposed to be like significantly older by a few years you kind of get the sense that uh, she is basically using cheryl for her money just to get out to the city yeah i i mean everything else is uh, inconsequential yeah, we do find out that that Cheryl has run away from home and stolen money from her parents and that she financed this trip with her friend. So Cheryl is played by an actress named Ayn uh, Roman. 
I think is how you pronounce that. Um, and she's only uh, been in a few things. Um, although I think she does a great job in this movie. Like, I really like her. I, I really like everyone's performance in this movie. I, I would say everybody did a good job for their roles, um, except maybe a little bit at the end. But I will discuss that when we get to it. Yeah, okay. So the director I know a little bit more about, his name's Paul Bartel. Um, he's most famous for the movie he made after this one, Eating Raul, which is like a, a dark comedy from 1982 um, about cannibals. Uh, he also directed um, Death Race 2000, um, which many of our listeners will know as, as sort of a cult classic. Um, but I, I think the film is well-directed as well, although it's really unclear what, kind of film this is or what it's it's aiming for it's certainly not scary and i don't think it's trying to be so i don't like if you if you owned a video store what what section would you put this in well first off the trailer makes it sound like a horror film a traditional horror film and it is definitely not supposed to be in that section but then where do you put it this film would be considered taboo in certain places of the U.S. today. I can only imagine the general reception to this film in the early 70s. It's Really, I think it's amazing this film completed production in the first place. Like, you didn't have one, one producer, one suit come down to, this, to the movie set and just shut it down. It's, it's just incredible. So after the fact, uh, I think this is pretty interesting. So the original title of the movie was Blood Relations, which I think gives something of the plot away. Um, MGM altered the title to Private Parts, but a lot of newspapers refused to print that at the time. And so a lot of newspapers advertised the film as Private Arts. You know what? Tells romance. I would put it in the romance section. <laughs> that might be the most fitting. So um, back to the story. So uh, Cheryl steals her parents' money back from her friends, um, and, and she runs away, and she enters a, a hotel, what's called a hotel, but it's really more like a boarding house or like an apartment complex. Um, and the first character we meet is the reverend at least that's what it says on his his room door what was your initial impression of this reverend this man's gonna be gay as hell and not just gay but like this is a this is a um a molester right like, <laughs> yeah but they, they the movie didn't go that route for his character no but he's He's doing some things that I think are meant to be shocking to us. Like at one point we see him in sort of a BDSM leather outfit, like sneaking out of the hotel. Um, And there's a lot of insinuation about him liking young boys. So, uh, you know, again, we did not really have time to digest this film. We watched it and are immediately recording this podcast, but one of my one of my initial observations of this film was trying to figure out is this movie trying to be exploitative in the way that it is showing all of these alt lifestyles or is it trying to just uh, 
promote exposure of these lifestyles to let people know that these things exist? That is a really good question. Like I haven't thought about it in that way, uh, but we certainly like the film doesn't really seem to be judging these characters. No, not at all. Um, and I know there's the the old stereotype that all you know homosexual men are pedophiles, but I I didn't really get that vibe from this film. Like, yeah, when you eventually see inside the Reverend's room, he has gay pornography everywhere. But I think everyone was of a reasonable consenting age. Yeah, all the pornography is clearly adults and of the characters we meet who he is supposedly uh, you know, having these affairs with, they're all clearly adults as well. So even though I think this character gives off sort of an air of perversion, um, he doesn't seem to be malicious. Uh, in fact, he has sort of a, a goofy, personable personality. I mean, you have to be to lure your victims in, right? No, I'm, I'm just kidding. Um, it, yeah, it, one thing I really noticed about his character is that he's really front-loaded in this film. He is prevalent in a lot of scenes in the first half. And then after he gets a visit from, it's either a male prostitute or his boyfriend, he basically becomes MIA until the, the last scene of the film or the last uh, last scene, yeah. Well, I mean, there's only so there's only like five characters in this movie, Um, you know, major characters. And there's clearly not very many people in this hotel, although uh, our proprietor, Aunt Martha, um, repeatedly says that they have to be extremely selective with their clientele because there's no vacancies and it's the last respectable hotel in the city. So if, I mean, with, with all the stuff that's packed into this film, how many more like freaks can you shove in the clown car, right? It, yeah, but I, I, I just want to emphasize that the movie really doesn't seem to be judging them. Like we call them freaks and, and some of the characters call them freaks, but they're not portrayed in really a negative way. I, I think the movie is trying to shock us, but in almost the same way that like, John Waters tries to shock us where he's they're 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 shocking us in a good-natured way like everybody's in on the joke and at the end of the day everybody's a good person who's maybe misguided in some way you're right I need to change my terminology to be more sensitive to these people so we're gonna go with eccentric individuals (laughs) all right idiosyncratic residents uh, <laughs> i'll try to remember that one all right so so cheryl has come to ask aunt martha if she can stay for a couple of days and aunt martha reluctantly agrees but she says that cheryl the one condition is that cheryl can't wander around the hotel alone because this is quote no place for a little girl she also tells cheryl right away to go wash the paint off her face because this is no place for whores. So we see our first murder pretty quickly. Um, the friends, uh, the friend who Cheryl stole money from, her boyfriend shows up to get the money, and the priest invites him up to his room. But on the way there, someone chops his head off and then throws his body in the furnace. 
and, and yeah. we don't find out who this is until the very end of the film. Um, I, I was very surprised to see this man get the Saudi Arabian public execution so fast because I thought some of these characters were going to last a little longer. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, I I mean, I was surprised by his death as well. Um, but we, I'm torn between thinking this is a shocking exhibition of violence for 1972 and thinking that it's actually somewhat discreet. Like, we don't see shooting blood or, or gore or anything. Oh, yes. Yeah, so decapitation should be much more bloody than this. Well, like, what kind of budget was this film on? I really don't know. It was Paul Bartel's first movie. Um, and despite being put out by MGM, my impression is that it was fairly low budget. Um, but I couldn't find out the actual numbers. We need to keep in mind, too, that in Blood and Lace, the hammer scene at the beginning was considered extremely gruesome for the time and that was more detailed than any of the violence that you see in this film yeah that's true i i mean honestly the most disgusting thing in this film isn't the violence it's the bathroom that cheryl attempts to take a bath in (laughs) that poor you would get an infection taking a bubble bath in this tub yeah so there's one bathroom for the hotel um that's down the hall from cheryl's room and early on, she attempts to take a bath in it. And, and we can see sort of green streaks down the side of the bathtub and uh, just a general disarray. Um, but so we switch after this to a scene with Martha and we find out that she had a husband named Orville and that they had a daughter um, but Martha is sure to tell Cheryl that she had the daughter without Orville, that they, they came up with another way. And when Cheryl asks where her daughter is now, uh, Martha just says it's in the Lord's hands. So at this point, did, did you think that Martha's daughter was dead? Uh, you know, my first thought actually went to, does this woman have a freezer somewhere in the attic? or the basement and is keeping all these people preserved for later revival (laughs) (laughs) you're just too influenced by what we watched last time i i am um i i assumed the husband was probably out but i did not correctly assume where the daughter was going to be until a little a little bit of halfway through the film okay yeah i'm Let's wait because I'm curious about when you found out about that particular secret. Of um, course. But uh, Martha is played by Lucille Benson, um, who is from Alabama, and you can tell that she is from Alabama. She has a very distinctive voice. Um, and she's been in a lot of movies. Uh, she's kind of a, a character actress, I suppose. Um, I, I don't. I didn't immediately recognize her, but she's in Halloween 2, for example. Um, She's in lots of TV shows. Uh, So she had a pretty prolific career, and she comes across as a great actress. Like, I love this portrayal. Yeah, she is my favorite character in the entire film. And her actress kind of reminds me of, like, a diet Kathy Bates. Does that make sense? Yeah, I can see it. Although... In some ways, she exudes more authenticity than Kathy Bates. Like, I'm always conscious of Kathy Bates acting and not so much here. Like, 
Aunt Martha really seems like a real person. No, you're right. Um, she definitely struck me as like if 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 you hadn't have said that she was an actress and other things, I would have just assumed they picked her up from somewhere and this was her only film. So um not uh so Martha gets Cheryl to help her clean rooms. Um, but there's a particular room that she tells Cheryl she can't go in because it's a quote, a little peculiar. It's unclear which room this is. There, there's a couple mysterious rooms. There's George's room, who is a character we'll get to. And then there's also a storage room that has holes uh, through which someone could spy on Cheryl in either her bedroom or in the bathroom. Um, so th this hotel just gets a little sleazier as the film goes on. Uh, the other thing, so one thing that I really like about this movie and the way that it characterizes the hotel is we constantly hear the noises of the hotel and it prevents Cheryl from sleeping, like creaking floors, dripping water. I think the movie does this really well. Like it, it creates a really believable atmosphere. I, I really feel like I'm in the hotel while the movie is going on. I think the number one best thing about this film is the set design. Every single room exudes so much character with just the tiniest things on everybody's desks and tables and nightstands. Um, obviously, the photographer's room stands out because there's a lot to look at. Um, but even if you um, even if you like pay attention to uh, the, ki the the kitchen for the ant, right? This is obviously an old building. And so it's going to have furniture that's old to that era. Like if this movie were made now, the hotel probably would have been made in the seventies and there'd be seventies furniture everywhere. Instead, they just like furniture from the forties everywhere. There's like a forties ice box in the kitchen. And I think all of these little things add up to making like a great setting. Yeah, the, the other thing that makes this movie seem real is there's lots of, of scenes and asides and character traits that don't really contribute to the plot, but make these characters seem real. Like, for example, there's a scene where the Reverend uh, asks for Cheryl's full name so that he can write it down in a book, and he counts the number of consonants in her name. There's 11, and says that 11 consonants make someone one of God's selects. Uh, and then he also tells um, Aunt Martha that he's been studying her horoscope. Like, this contributes nothing to the plot. It never comes up again. But it really contributes to making him seem like a true, albeit strange, person. You know, I think that scene was meant to establish the fact that he is not in any way, shape, or form a real reverend before you even see the inside of his room. Yeah, I think that's um, true. I, I think that was the point of the scene, but I, th I think you're right. There's a lot of character traits that are definitely inconsequential to the plot, but they really flesh out these characters, especially, again, through the scene design, right? Like, you can tell the, the photographer without... Because you see his room before you're really introduced to the character. He is going to be OCD. He's going to be, you know, very meticulous in how he lives his life because of all the stuff organized in all of these different drawers and uh, on tabletops etc and then you have the drunks room for example where there's literally nothing but a bed and 
I don't know, torn up carpet or leaves on the floor. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure what that is, but it's distinctive. Before we even, so the photographer's name is George. And before we really do formally meet him, uh, Cheryl finds a book in her room called Desires in the Shadows. Um, and it shows us a few flashes of it. It looks like erotica, but she finds a note in the book that says, how do you like it so far, Cheryl? And she, there's sort of a, a plot tangent where she goes into different rooms trying to figure out whose handwriting this is. But we kind of know right away that it's George's. Yeah, but I really liked the premise that that was her excuse to go to room to room to, to like find out about these characters was comparing the handwriting. It doesn't immediately... The movie doesn't immediately tell you that's what she's doing either. You don't find out until she's about halfway in the room with the piece of paper, like then trying to compare some handwriting. At first, you're like, what the hell is she doing? Yeah, um, but, um, you, you know, this is another example of the film really using the setting to its advantage. Like it uses the setting to teach us about these characters. Um, even if a, a room is not integral to the plot, it is integral to making this seem like a real lived-in building and, and teaching us something about the people who live here. We also skipped over how she got the keys. Oh, yeah, I, I was going to get very important scene. Yeah, so Aunt Martha has, has a pet rat named Whitey. Um, and, and Martha is about to go to a funeral, and she tells Cheryl to that that whitey will keep her company and and i love this dialogue exchange cheryl asks martha if she knew the lady who died and martha responds by saying there's some things you're still too young to understand and she she takes a camera with her to the funeral um to take pictures for her album and she says that she tries to capture the exact moment that the spirit leaves the body so what what do you think like do you think this character trait this this habit of photographing spirits leaving the body do you think that this is important to the story or not i i think it's one of those traits that helps identify that she is just as weird as all the people she is uh you know landlording over or i'm what? sorry as, that she is just as eccentric as the other people she is landlording well, it also contributes to this belief she has, and we're going to get to this more later, but the she has an interesting philosophy about bodies being prisons for our true character and like keeping the spirit captive. Um, and, and this actually gets into themes of like transgenderism and sexuality um, and the idea that our true nature might run counter to the body we're living in. And, and, and so I think that that's why she's so interested in photographing um, this escape of the spirit from the body. I suppose you're right. It does lead to uh, a much bigger scene later on in the film. And so that's why she says to Cheryl that there's some things you're still too young to understand. Like at the time, it seems like just a throwaway strange line. And, and I do think it's funny. Like it makes me laugh. Um, but it, it also is really revelatory uh, as to the, the nature of this character and what she believes. To, to get back to Whitey, 
Um, so Whitey is wandering around the room um, after uh, Aunt Martha has left. And the first thing that struck me here is that Whitey is a really amazing rat actor. Oh, like, without a doubt. Like if this, this movie was made rat. today, if this movie was made today, Whitey would be CGI. And, oh, yes. He would be Stuart Little. And it would distract from the scene. And instead, I am struck by how well-trained this real rat is like things like little things like this contribute so much to the realism of movies that we have just lost now there's just few if any filmmakers are attempting to establish the reality of setting that this movie accomplishes i think mouse hunt was the last great real mouse film of our time even that one uses some CGI, right? Some CGI, yes. But but yeah, there's certainly real mouse acting going on there. And um, I, I just have to add, I think Whitey is the only character I felt sorry for in the entire film. Yeah. So, not get a fair shake. No, we we feel sorry for him because he uh, reaches up to touch some keys that are hanging from the wall and he's electrocuted. So we know the keys are electrocuted um, or, you know, they're hooked up to electricity. Cheryl takes th the dead rat and puts him down the garbage disposal. I, Head first. I, I think I saw you kind of wincing during this scene. You're not supposed to put bones down the garbage disposal, man. Also, Whitey was a good rat. He deserved a good Christian burial. <laughs> yeah, well, he definitely deserved better than he got. You're right. <laughs> um, so Cheryl, Cheryl's pretty smart. She uses a broom to take the keys off, and, and that's how she get the, gets the keys that she uses to inspect everyone's room. The, the other thing she finds, um, apart from uh, the peepholes and the writing, is she finds pictures of this other girl, Alice, who is clearly lived in her room before she did. There's several references to her, and, and Alice is going to be an important character uh, later on in the film, even though she doesn't actually appear. Let's talk about the Reverend's room for a minute, because he has the most incredible Jesus shrine I've ever seen. Yes, I absolutely love Bondage Jesus. Now, do you think that he has that big crucified Jesus because he's a devout Christian or because he finds Jesus's physique sexy? It might be a little bit of both, but from the one scene where he's talking about horoscopes and God's chosen, I just sort of figured that he likes all spirituality, like regardless of source or meaning or anything i think he's probably somebody that just groups it all together into one ball of um of, of like character identity i mean that might be true but uh the reverend's jesus shrine is almost almost matched uh by his gay porno pornography shrine well i mean it is surrounded entirely by gay pornography so there, there's obviously some implication that this man really wants to accept Jesus into his heart. So, so uh, as well as maybe other other orifices. 
right. that going is that going too far have i bes- <laughs> have i besmirched it jesus i i am not the authority to judge you okay fair enough um so uh, after after cheryl returns to her own room um she finds like lingerie like a like a negligee on her bed with a note that says wear this for me um and it kind of looks like the sort of lingerie that like uh lily munster would wear um like it has sort of spider webs across it's like an elvira outfit right yeah but you know the girl sees this and I don't think she immediately thinks it's sexual. I think she just sees it as being adult. This is what adults wear. And I feel like Cheryl's aspirations throughout this entire film are really to be older than she really is. Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, This is a coming of age story if you really think about it. Yeah, and and you know that's brought home by in the next scene, the, the gift of the negligee is contrasted with with the gift that Martha gives her. So when Martha returns from the funeral, she gives her a lollipop. And it's one of those like gigantic lollipops like you would see in like fake Lolita porn. Right? <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, like part it's, of a little girl costume. It's one of those giant lollipops that you, it's too heavy for the kids. So they drop it on the sidewalk and they cry. Because it's covered in like dirt and gravel. Yeah, so it's, I mean, I've never thought about it in this way before, but maybe these two scenes are contrasting um, these two types of gifts. Because we we surmise that George has given her the, the lingerie. And later in the film, she tells George, you're the only one who doesn't treat me like a little girl. So it's almost like to, to Cheryl... George is giving her this sexy adult outfit and the other main character in the movie is giving her an oversized lollipop. So it's... Yeah, this movie is kind of like a creep 101 on how to groom a child. I, although in this case, it's not really a child, right? We're, we're seeing like at least mid-20s woman uh, yeah. going through these things. I, I think realistically, she's supposed to be early teens. Like, as far as what the screenplay is calling for. Yeah, I'm really not sure. I mean, she could be as young as like 14 or as late as like 18. Yeah, it, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. So um, what matters, I think, is her state of innocence. And yes. she, she clearly is innocent at the point that, you know, the only sexual experience she seems to have is spying on her friend having sex. So... I, I we get next we get one of my favorite images from the movie, which is George, the photographer, steals this photograph of Cheryl from her room and he blows it up really big and cuts it out. And then he straps it on the face of a blow-up doll that he has in his bed. This is the oddest facial expression. I mean, this whole image and scene is weird. But the facial expression in the picture he chose of Cheryl only adds to the absurdity. I want to know what the director told Cheryl's actress to do for that photo. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I mean, to our listeners, I don't even know how to describe it. If you haven't seen this movie, 
I have no idea what facial expression this is supposed to be. This is like the kind of photo that would be used in a psychology study where you show faces to different people and ask them what emotion they think it'd be. But you would check no box on this one. <laughs> so we it, let's talk about George's room for a moment. We've got the blow-up doll on the bed, which um, is, isn't like a traditional blow-up doll. It's like clear, and instead of filled with air, it's filled with water. And then it's got the strange Cheryl photo taped to its head. And then around the walls, we have lots of pictures of either women, uh, particularly Alice, um, but also like close-ups of body parts. Like right by the door, there's just a gigantic nipple. Um, so his, his room is incredibly sexualized. It's definitely the best room in the entire hotel. And that's really saying something because there's a lot of competition. Yeah. Yeah. So Cheryl goes to get um, a key made, a copy of uh, one of the keys made so that she can get into the, the rooms herself. And here's where we meet Jeff. So Jeff is a young guy, maybe Cheryl's age, and he works at the key shop. Um, and Cheryl tells him where she lives. Uh, so he calls her up later to ask her out. So he becomes sort of a I guess a side romantic interest in competition with George, right? He doesn't stand a chance. Also, <laughs> he's probably the most normal character throughout the entire film. Yeah, that I mean, I think he exists to be a contrast with the people who live at the hotel. Hey, in case you forgot what regular people act like. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I think he plays an important function but at the same time, he's probably the least fleshed out character. I don't really think there's much to flesh out. Yeah, I mean, maybe this is the alternative sort of what Cheryl's option would be if she did not become an adult from her he, perspective. He's like the white picket fence safe option. Yeah, it, it, totally true. So so moving on, we get another wonderful dialogue scene with Martha, Martha, and she's come back from another funeral. And she says that at certain funerals, you can actually feel the liberation of the spirit from the body. And she tells Cheryl that when you're older, you'll realize that the body is a prison that traps and bends the natural spirit to its will. The body makes us into men and women or whatever it likes, whether we like it or not. So here again is that, that sort of transgenderism theme made more explicit, that rather than being a component of the self, the body is like a prison that traps the true self. This was my favorite monologue throughout the from the entire movie. Yeah, it, it's it's really wonderful. So to get back, um, Jeff, the guy from the key shop, calls to ask Cheryl out to a concert. Um, and when Martha hears this, she tells Cheryl that she's going to end up like all the other women in this family. And so we're getting more of this suggestion that Martha sees like female sexuality Either she sees it unreasonably as a dangerous thing, or there's really something going on in the family lineage that we don't know about. 
what like what did you think about it at this point where, where do you think that that aunt martha is coming from so although she specifically calls out the family line i really feel like she has this opinion of all women where it is the nature of a woman to be you know sexually available and aggressive yeah i i think I mean, I think you're right. And as if to confirm that, so at this point, we get several weird sexually suggestive scenes. Um, and, and first, we you actually pointed this out. Um, George is shown with a couple of testosterone hormone bottles. So at this point, what did you think was up with these bottles? So to paint the scene, George is in his room with the doll performing his ritual <laughs> basically his uh his sexualized ritual what he does with this doll and in the middle of it he opens a cabinet and there's no emphasis placed on this whatsoever but you can see just to the side of what he's reaching for there are two vials of testosterone and that is what tipped me off to what the eventual end of the movie would be did did it did you did you have that realization at this point in the movie? It wasn't immediate that he are we going straight into spoilers here? Sure. Okay. It didn't I didn't necessarily figure out it was going to be the daughter almost immediately because this scene happens before you find out that George and the aunt are related. So my only uh, thought at the time was okay maybe this man is transgendered and it was only after that scene with the aunt that i was starting to put two and two together so so yeah to to drive home the transgender point and to um to explain his ritual uh so he he uses a syringe to withdraw some of his blood and then he injects the blood into where the vagina would be on his Cheryl doll. And we get this kind of lovely shot of his blood filtering into the water inside of the doll. It's um, very phallic, and honestly, it's really well shot. Yeah, no, it's really beautiful. Like, it, it's as beautiful as I think you could make this shot. <laughs> Awful subject matter, great execution. Yeah. So Cheryl starts following George. Cheryl has not seen any of this syringe scene, but she follows George as he's leaving the hotel, and he goes into an adult store slash theater, um, and we see an array of pornographic books on the wall, and you pointed out that the one that's sort of front and center is called The Child Abusers. Oh, everything in the store I think is very deliberately placed in the frame to offend everybody. I mean, I have a collection of vintage erotic novels and these are very characteristic of like what was out in the seventies. I mean, it, it's like pornographic novels weren't just meant to tentilate. They also had to be somehow obscene or, distinctive they had to stand out yeah but there's also a a degree of depravity. impropriety or depravity is good right like 
it's almost like when people become desensitized to porn and have to seek out stranger and stranger <laughs> things in order to get off. Like, that's almost how these books strike me. Yeah, your body's developing a tolerance. You got to up the dosage. The, <laughs> other, the other titles, if I remember right, was uh, White Wives, Black Lovers, and The Widow's Sons. Yeah, they're... they're I mean, I wish I could see this this scene in even greater detail so I could make out more of it. Um, it it's also a wonderful example of sort of the niche genre of 70s and 80s and even early 90s films set in urban New York and Chicago that showed just how like grimy these cities were at that time before they were cleaned up. Like this whole sequence is suggestive of that, including where George goes next. So he goes into the park and starts photographing people jerking off and having sex in, in the public park. At night. At night, right. And so Cheryl is continuing to follow him. Eventually, he gets back to the hotel, and him and Martha have – it's a fight, but it's wonderful. Um, and a lot is said, but – uh, that doesn't completely make sense at this point in the movie. Um, but one thing I really like is is Martha tells George like to stay away from Cheryl that he should stick with the dolls because the dolls can't hurt him. And she says, I'll find you somebody else, but not Cheryl. Like she is totally opposed to Cheryl being involved with George. Do I thought you- that was kind of a break in her character well that's what i was about to ask you so so let me ask this do you think that in this scene martha's concern is for cheryl or for george man i mean you know how the aunt feels about painted women so if she were to find a different woman it would have to be someone that isn't a painted woman and where do you find that person in the city right that it just seems like it's either a stalling tactic or it's just an inconsistent uh, you know, character flaw in, in the script. But well, I don't you know, I hate to I hate to say it's a flaw because showing that Martha is nuanced and conflicted, I mean, maybe it's bad writing, but it also adds to realism. Like it's totally possible that she is concerned for both George and Cheryl. And that she's conflicted and unsure about what she actually prefers to happen. Actually, yeah, I guess you're probably right. Because she does eventually try to get Cheryl on that bus. Like, she tries everything to convince Cheryl to leave. Um, If she really didn't care, I suppose she wouldn't go through the trouble of looking up bus schedules and constantly goading her into trying to leave. Yeah, so, so after this, Martha does tell Cheryl, like, you need to you need to move out right away. You need to stay away from George. That you're playing a dangerous game. But instead of heeding that advice, uh, we see Cheryl like dressing up in the outfits that George bought for her and doing like a strip tease in front of the the peephole where she knows George is watching. And they also have a conversation on the phone, and George asks her what she 
if she liked the things he gave her. And I love this this exchange. She says they were neat, <laughs> which is like the most childish adjective possible. But then she says, you're the only one who doesn't treat me like a little girl. You think of me as a woman. Um, and she asks him to come to her room and says, we can get together and, and talk or something. Uh, and you can take my picture and I'll do anything you ask me to. Like this is her sort of inexperienced, amateur way of trying to be seductive is, is what this struck me as. Yes, absolutely. But to contrast with George, uh, Jeff, the guy from the key shop, shows up to ask to, to take Cheryl to the concert. And we see Cheryl wearing uh, an most, absolutely ridiculous uh, outfit. The most offensive thing in the entire film is this outfit. <laughs> Why? Describe it. It is neon green. A neon green dress with purple accented accessories combined with awful makeup like like something you would see a, a child put on a doll i suppose yeah yeah with with silver boots or silver like, boots yeah um so for some reason even though she was really nice before um cheryl is is really mean to jeff during this whole scene um and that only gets worse when jeff's Jeff tells us that he was very good friends with Alice, the girl that disappeared. And we find out that Alice was afraid of George. And Cheryl gets offended that Jeff is asking about Alice instead of paying attention to her. And she says this, George knows the difference between a child and a woman. And I think there's some things you're still too young to understand, which of course is what Martha said to Cheryl earlier in the movie and and Cheryl storms off back to the hotel and leaves uh leaves Jeff but we see George watching and you really laughed during this scene like what what did you think of this scene because he's just looming in the background I, I feel like he was almost ready to just gank that kid at the first opportunity yeah so but he isn't just looking out over like at them right he, he has his head cocked in a way he's wearing his sunglasses at night his hair's a mess yeah yeah it, it's it's a very dramatic um he's backlit so both of them make it back to the hotel and martha tells cheryl that she needs to be on a bus the next day and and she says i won't have whores and painted women in my house and, and we see george he's listening to a tape of Alice, um, and th she is uh, apparently posing almost naked for him um, in the recording, and then she gets scared because he brings out a needle. Um, and at this point, Jeff interrupts, and George busts Jeff in the head with a bottle and then drags him <laughs> to the dark room by lapels that might rival... Uh, Mrs. Deers from Blood and Lace. So this kid shows up to try to get a second chance with Cheryl. Here's the screaming thinking it's Cheryl and then gets <laughs> popped with the bottle <laughs> before getting dragged out. And, I, and at this point, we assume he's dead, right? Uh, I assumed he was going to be killed when they took him to the dark, when he was taken to the dark room. Right. But 
that's not how it panned out. But just how powerful do you think those lapels have to be that they can support dragging dead weight? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, last week I said that those were the most ridiculous lapels I've ever seen, and they're topped. almost rivaled. I think they're topped. I that kid's acting could not hide the, sh- the size of those lapels. I noticed immediately. Yeah. So another thing I'm struck by right around this time is Cheryl goes into George's room and she sees the Cheryl doll on the bed and she's not put off by this. If anything, she's like excited about it. She has no frame of reference for what proper affection should be. Maybe she's flattered by the fact that he created this like simulacrum of her. Um, yeah, no, I, I think that's right. And so she she lays in the bed herself and puts the mask on and, and poses as the doll. And she surprises George. And then they they enter into possibly the most awkward photography session uh, that I've ever seen in a movie. Cheryl is a terrible model. And George's only instructions are to pose in different ways. He is supposed to be a professional, and he has all professional equipment. But as was established earlier, his entire living is based on just taking voyeur pictures of people fucking in the public park at night. (laughs) Right. I mean, I'm really curious how, like, knowing everything we do about him by the end of the movie, I'm curious how he got into this line of work. Well... I mean, based on the ritual, I would say that everything is just supposed to be a replacement for what a normal (laughs) for what normal sexual activity is supposed to be. That makes makes sense. Yeah, he's been repressed by the ant so hard that this is like the I think she almost guides him into going this way as an outlet because she specifically brings up the dolls like she's okay with it. Like, yo, man, just use the dolls. That's what they're there for. Right. Yeah, she she is in anything except embracing femininity um, is, is preferable to her. But at this point, uh, George comes to Cheryl with the needle um, about to, it, it's filled with blood. So we imagine he's going to inject her um, and she panics and she knocks over a lamp like a, pole lighting that would frame a photograph and it falls on his head and kills him and martha hears this and she shows up and cheryl says he tried to rape me and martha says he couldn't rape anyone and at this point we see that george has breasts and so any insinuation before that george was martha's daughter who has transitioned into living as a man, uh, at this point, they're confirmed. So at, were you certain before this point, or is was this a revelation to you? No, at, at that point, I pretty much knew what was coming. But the, the odd if thing... If I hadn't seen those bottles, that would have been completely out of left field. But I think that's the point. I, I think they were there for the astute viewer to have a hint as to what was going on. But there is absolutely no framing for these bottles whatsoever. They are literally a side note of the frame of which they are in. One thing that's odd about this movie, and I actually think 
is a strength is if you think about blood and lace and other movies like that that have shocking twists the movie is directed and the film score indicates to us that these twists are supposed to surprise and shock us but in this movie there are no cues for anything being shocking or revelatory so it almost is as if there are no surprises in this movie we are just watching events unfold as if they are all entirely natural that is a beautiful observation i agree like i remember first seeing this movie like i can't remember if i had guessed before now that george was her daughter or not um but i or had been her daughter um but i wasn't shocked or surprised or taken aback it was just like yep yeah, that seems like a natural development for, <laughs> for this film i mean they do drop uh about two-thirds of the way into the film that they're related yeah which then of course makes cheryl and george cousins <laughs> right which isn't directly stated but is totally true Cheryl doesn't know, but what she doesn't know can't hurt her, right? Yeah, exactly. But well, George I'm, is aware. I mean, uh, Aunt Martha thinks that this whole situation is harmful. Um, but at this point, now that she sees George is dead, she says, maybe it's better this way. His, his spirit is free of that body at last. And then she turns to, to Cheryl and says, hope isn't lost for you. You can take his place you can stay here and be my son and have this room. I definitely was not seeing this shift coming. No, this, 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 this was not expected for me either. But now that I'm thinking about it, did she mean that now Cheryl can take in the spirit of her son and become George? I'm really not sure, but what I do... What this scene does tell me is that we're not dealing with an actual case of transgenderism where people sincerely feel that they're born in the wrong body. Like George would not have been transgender. And I don't even know that he would identify as transgender if he hadn't been pushed into that by Martha, who is now willing to push Cheryl into it. Um, so I just, I don't want to, I don't want to suggest that this is like an LGBTQ movie. No, this is not. This is not a movie about transgenderism. This is a movie about family abuse and oppression and the warping of people to fit preconceived biases by Aunt Martha. At least that's my perspective on it. Um, I, I don't see this as any kind of accurate representation of transgender sexuality. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't really think there's much I could add to that. But Martha says, she goes back on this a moment later and says, I, I'd never know what you'd do behind my back. You, you wouldn't be a good son. And she takes a machete out of her robe. The same yeah. machete that she used to kill the uh, the initial man at the beginning of the film. Right. But what really got me is 
we saw Martha jump out of bed and run down to respond to Cheryl's screams. When did she put the machete in her robe? Does she just keep it on her all the time? Yeah, man, it's uh, concealed carry, so it's it's good to go. I mean, maybe if you live in this hotel, like it's she she didn't even want Cheryl walking around when she wasn't at the hotel at all during the day. What do you think it's like at night? Right. So this is just like this whole apartment is a stand your ground zone where <laughs> you you need to keep your machete close. Um, so we know at this point that that Martha killed Alice and Martha killed Cheryl's friends that came looking for her and that Martha wants to kill Cheryl. Do um, you think Martha killed Alice? Yes. I, I think it was um, assumed that, that George killed her. No, because um, Martha says something in the scene along the lines of, I can't remember the actual dialogue, but she essentially cops to killing Alice just like what happened to those friends that came looking for you. Yeah, but those friends don't include Alice because in the dark room, there are photos of Alice in the poses that were some that Cheryl was having similar in their photography session, but Alice didn't fight back or was not successful. And you could see that, you know, there's the syringe in the one photo. And then as the, as they, as the flip book progressed, she was dead and lying in a pool of her own blood. Yeah, you might be right. I mean, so it's not it's not exactly that, that is, clear. That but. is what uh, Aunt Martha was trying to prevent by putting Cheryl on the bus and sending her out of the city. Yeah, okay. That, that makes sense. So there, there's some business after this where um, Jeff's father shows up looking for him with police and they discover all of the bodies. But honestly, I think that whole sequence is kind of unimportant. What's important is that at the very end, we see Cheryl coming down the stairs dressed like Aunt Martha and speaking in her voice. What did you think about this ending? I was not a big fan of that ending. I see what they were going for because you can think of it as ambiguous whether or not Cheryl is just, again, imitating these adults around her as part of her coming of age to be more adult or you can say that in the struggle where she killed aunt martha aunt martha's spirit that inhabited cheryl's body so this ending to me is the really the only failure of the movie and i think it's kind of a cop-out in three ways so the first way is that jeff survived And I don't know why he survived. Like, I don't know why Martha would have left him alive after she... It wasn't Martha. It was was George that dragged him to the dark room. Well, but even if George has... Like, if George killed Alice or if George has shown a willingness to kill people, I I don't know why he leaves Jeff alive. So I don't think it's ever established who killed... Uh, we we skipped over this scene because it's not that important. But after Cheryl's friend's boy squeeze 
comes to the hotel and gets killed by the ants. The friend then shows up about halfway through the movie looking for both of them and is lured into the dark room by the ant where the lights are then turned off after you are um, exposed to all the Alice photos that I talked about earlier. And she is murdered and left in that room for the remainder of the movie. But it's never revealed whether it is the ant or George that does it. Right. And like you can say that since her throat was cut, that it was probably the ants using her uh, stand her ground machete, ditched the body in the sink, and then uh, and then just moved on with managing the hotel. Meanwhile, so- George drags the body down there, maybe for Martha to deal with later, because as far as we know, George's only body count is Alice. Yeah, I, I and I still think that's ambiguous. But re- regardless, it's I don't buy that either of them um, would just leave Jeff alive unless they thought he was dead. So I, I just sucks so much. <laughs> I think that that's I think that's a little bit of a cop out. And then it doesn't show us how Martha gets killed or we find out later dressed in the tiny negligee that Cheryl was wearing. It doesn't fit very well, but I'm assuming Cheryl overpowered her, killed her, and then, you know, either as a form of imitation or spirituality uh, mechanics, there maybe there was a Freaky Friday moment after the murder I mean, where... Like- I can sur- takes over Cheryl and they swap clothes. We can surmise all of this, but we're just making assumptions. And that's why I think it's a weakness of the movie. Like, I don't think this needs to remain ambiguous because it's out of character with the rest of the movie. I, I think that the, this ending sort of rings false. Um, and I think that it's inconsistent with it feels to me like they they one didn't know how to wrap the movie up and two that they wanted sort of an artificial final shock um for the viewer and, and this is what they could come up with so i don't i'm not saying it, it ruins the movie it's just it is the one thing that remains unsatisfying to me right it's the one water stain on this immaculate fountain. Yeah. So I think that I think that this is a great place to to give final thoughts and, and rate this film. So why don't you start? Like final thoughts and what would you give it out of four? I really like this film, despite the ending. I, I think it has a lot in common with Blood and Lace. And I'm beginning to wonder if uh you know a lot of these themes continue throughout these uh you know weird psychological 70s films that i'm being exposed to the set design i think the the set design and the characterizations i think are the best parts of this film like you were saying the plot is almost inconsequential it's a character study there there are characters we didn't discuss that are in the film uh, that are just as enjoyable as as the ones that we did mention the ending though really took uh, a left turn for me it's almost as if it was written by someone else you have these two police officers show up from a completely different movie it's like they're from police academy their demeanor their uh is just so different 
the what their acting style is not consistent at all with the rest of the film and it's almost slapstick like they find a you know the slit throat corpse in the dark room and they're like yeah yeah whatever it's the thing let's let's uh go find cheryl it's what we're here for that's that really uh that, that whole that whole scene really soured me i i was wondering though every just about every part of this film was trying to be i don't know if it was offensive or just like different to the point of trying to uh, to to challenge social norms at the time so overall i know this sounded a bit ranty but i was very close to giving this film four stars until that ending i'm gonna go with three and a half i enjoyed this a lot more than blood or a little bit more than blood place i think even if you know the plot this is still definitely worth watching if for anything else again the the composition of the interactions between everyone in the hotel just really bring it all together. Yeah, I, I, I think that's pretty spot on. I, I agree with Leland entirely in this review. Um, I think that even if we spoiled the plot of this movie for you, uh, it's totally worth seeing just for the, the set design, the characterizations, the interesting creative choices of this film. The writing team that that wrote this film, we didn't talk about them, but they really didn't do, I think they did one other movie. And so I think that some of the amateurish nature of, of the story, especially that failure in the end, um, could just come from inexperience. Uh, I, I am totally with this movie until the very end. And even that, as I said earlier, I don't think it's like damning. I don't think it ruins the movie. It's just the rest of the movie is such a pleasure for me um, that any small failure comes off as a disappointment. So I, I'm going to give this three and a half stars as well, but, but I highly, highly recommend uh, that you check it out. So that about wraps it up for uh, 1972's Private Parts aka blood relations this is available on vhs it's available on amazon prime it's available to rent on youtube and and i believe it has both dvd and blu-ray releases so um, you should be able to get your hands on this one And, and i also recommend the director's other films particularly uh eating raul Um, So with all that said, please join us next week. We're going to be discussing the Oinga Boinga classic uh, and one of Danny Elfman's first film credits, uh, Forbidden Zone, which I think will be an incredibly interesting conversation. If you have not seen it, uh, then check it out and join us next week. You can find everything that we do at video.store.nightmares on Instagram. That is it. Until next week. Goodbye.
Ah, ah, ah.